Well, hello, 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 everyone. How's everybody doing out there? I am Alvin King, your host of He Said, He Said, He Said, a look at the world from a seasoned Black man's perspective. Thank you all for joining us tonight on this Friday, July the 15th. Yes, we are truly halfway through the summer and, or I'm sorry, through the year and have completely embarked uh, on our summer. Once again, I'm glad that you all are here and thank you for joining us. Uh, it has been a crazy week, for me at least. And I know in looking around the world, the weather has played a huge part of that. Um, from torrential downpours to high winds, trees falling on, on people's homes, uh, it's just been really crazy. And so I wanna give a shout out to everyone who experienced um, some of these uh, crazy weather patterns and how it's um, you know, affected you and your life. I'm praying for you, we are praying for you, and we hope all of you are safe. But as all of my spiritual folks will say, to whom much is given, much is required. And Lord knows, I know about that um, because again, this week I have a sunroof in my car and water got in the back, some valve got clogged and water got in the bottom of my car. And it just made me think of um, uh, one of the episodes from P Valley. My P Valley folks out there, I know you all are out there. How you doing, Rose? I know my P Valley folks are out there. There was an episode where Diamond was walking in water. It felt just like that, okay? I was just like, I was completely shocked at how that would happen. But, you know, I'm resilient and, and we have to, to press on. Um, but speaking of good writing, again, with P Valley, last week's show, yes, I'm a hop on it, where one of the uh, characters, Teak, took his own life in front of another character, Little Murder, and the show dealt with uh, male trauma. It was just absolutely incredible writing, ladies and gentlemen. And, you know, speaking of amazing writers, <laughs> I was in New York about three weeks ago for my birthday. It was Father's Day weekend, Juneteenth weekend. And I went to see an off-Broadway play called What the End Will Be. And it was written by a young, gifted, and Black man by the name of Mansa Ra. I got to tell you, I got a chance to meet him. And one of the stars of the play also, uh, Ryan uh, Jamal Swain were, was also there. I got a chance to meet him. He, he was one of the stars in the series Pose. But uh, Mansa was so in, inviting and so embracing. I got a chance to talk with him. And I'm telling you, he is here tonight to dish with all of us about the play and what's next for this, uh, this talented young man. But um, we're not going to do any of that before I bring on the highlight of my he said, he said, he said life. Mr. Vosh Bodhi. Vosh, can you come on in here? Hey, Alvin King. I'm good. <laughs> I'm good. Alvin King, you look good. Like Thank your you. skin looks all hydrated and glowy. Like you look uh, like you've been through trauma of the of jury duty. Uh, oh, all right. Okay. See, you know what? I'm just gonna <laughs> bottle, I'm gonna bottle you and put you on my dresser and take the top off in the morning. Thank you so much for that compliment. Um, no, I am, yeah, it is, um, yeah, to whom much is given, much is required. Okay, wait a minute. <laughs> That's a cute cup, ladies and gentlemen. Can you see the cup boss is holding? In case you missed it, we have merchandise now. 
<laughs> yours now. He said, he said, he said live at gmail.com. Thank you for, oh my gosh. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for, for showing that tonight. Woo. Okay. See, so you, you, you caught me off guard yet again. <laughs> again. So this crazy place that, 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 that we're living in and this world that we're living in, Vaj, um, so much is, is, has been going on and, you know, this January 6th stuff, um, it's just, I mean, it's just taking on different twists and turns, my friend. It's just absolutely insane. Exactly. At every, it's like it was last year where every like 30 seconds, something incredible has happened on the planet and you have to rethink how you're living it. Well, honey, I was, <laughs> I was great calling you, honey. I'm going to call you, honey. You did um, call me, honey. Yeah, honey. I'm going to call you anything <laughs> I want. But, but, um, what really got me this week in, in as far as what's going on with January 6th, um, the former White House counsel, Pat uh, Cipollone, yes. testified before the Congressional Committee investigating the, you know, the insurrection. And he corroborated virtually everything said by the White House insider, Cassidy Hutchinson, uh, doing her, you know, smoking gun testimony last week. And, um, you know, I was just like, I mean, completely completely blown away by the fact that he, his story corroborated, you know, was in sync with hers. And it made her look even, you know, legitimate. I mean, she was telling the truth is what I'm saying. Exactly. Like he did not negate anything that she said. And as a matter of fact, none of the people who are testifying are negating anything that anyone else has said. They're just right. giving more detail and their perspective. So when he testified, which he had to after she did, he laid out so much stuff that, you know, folks should be lining up to tell their side so they don't get in trouble. Well, and, you know, also the January 6th committee is actually showing that in no uncertain terms that Trump and his, his MAGA allies, that they planned, promoted, and led a criminal conspiracy to try to over, overthrow the U.S. government. And mm -hmm. all the while, before our very eyes, Trump and that same MAGA, his MAGA allies are putting in place uh, pieces that are needed to attempt a second coup in 2024. Moreover than that, we know that Jenny Thomas had some say and was 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 texting people, right? Ooh. So the fallout from these accusations that there was fraud in the election were that all these states want to change the, all of their election uh, rules and laws, right? Yeah. Swing on up to the Supreme Court, who wants to, led by Clarence Thomas, wants to push all voting jurisdiction back down into the states. We right. are seeing a direct connection to this insurrection through Jenny Thomas to the Supreme Court, showing right. how this insurrection had very deep roots and very wide branches. And right. we need to scrape all that infection out. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and I know that based on what you just said, you know, the January 6th committee, you know, they know that the Republicans plan centers around installing Trump lackeys in the offices that that will over oversee the elections in battleground states. And so it is time to stay woke people, stay woke, do what stay you woke. have to do in your jurisdictions, in your cities because we, we need to deal with this. How you doing, Blue? What does Blue say? Now we see why Pence did not trust the Secret Service. Mm -hmm. mm. I think I got that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right you are so, oh, 
again, <laughs> another piece of that puzzle. The Secret Service got rid of evidence. Yes, indeed. Well, look, in addition to staying woke, because we can come back to this, yes, one, of the, one of the most woke moments that I have seen in most recent time is when uh, Miss Kiera? Kiera. Kiera Bridges mm -hmm. sat oh, down and <laughs> had to deal with oh. Josh Hawley. We have that clip. We want to see, talk about this because we talk about this here, right? Yeah. She hasn't said anything that we haven't already talked about because we are gender warriors. We know what's up. We are woke. But let's see what she had to say, and we're going to come back and talk about this. Professor Bridges, you said several times, you've used a phrase. I want to make sure I understand what you mean by it. You've referred to people with a capacity for pregnancy. It, would that be women? Many women, cis women, have the capacity for pregnancy. Many cis women do not have the capacity for pregnancy. Um, there are also trans men who are capable of pregnancy, as well as non-binary people who are capable of pregnancy. So this isn't really a women's rights issue. It's a, it's, we can it's recognize a that this impacts women while also recognizing that it impacts other groups. Those things are not mutually exclusive, Senator Hawley. Oh, so your view is, is that the core of this, this right then is about what? So um, I want to recognize that your line of questioning um, is transphobic, <laughs> um, and it opens up trans people to violence by not recognizing that. Wow, you're saying that I'm opening up people to violence by asking whether or not women are the folks who can have pregnancies? So I'm one, I want to note that one out of five transgender uh, persons have attempted suicide. So I think it's important because of my us, line of questioning. Because so we can't talk about it. Because denying that trans people exist and pretending not to know that they exist. I'm is denying dangerous. that trans people exist by asking Are you? you if you're talking Are you? about women Are you? having pregnancies. Are you? <laughs> Are you? Are, <laughs> you know, in our community, we use the term "read," right? Yes. But the thing about a read is. It's not considered a read if it's if it's true. Right. Okay. Right. You only read you if it's she she just she let him have it. And you know, she went hard, right? She did go hard. Yeah. And but I'm glad that she was able to sort of start the conversation about there being sex. Yeah. Which has to deal sex terms, which deals with body parts and gender, which is how you show up in the world. And talking about men and women opens you up to certain types of conversations. And the, talking about sex opens you up to different kinds. And right. She really did start that. And I'm happy about that because some other people need to learn. Well, you know, there was another conversation sort of, you know, on the same or, or mm -hmm. on the same topic. Yes. Where on, on last Monday, Macy Gray was interviewed by Pierce Morgan. And mm -hmm. she discussed <laughs> the confusing state of gender identity while referencing the whole he, she, they pronoun usage. Though mm -hmm. she said, though, um, that she shared uh, Morgan's stance on supporting trans rights for fairness and, and equality, she also agreed with the view that trans women born to obviously superior physical bodies should be prohibited from competing against cis women in sport. There's a lot to unpack with what Macy said. First of all, when she was talking about uh, sex and women, he said, well, what's a woman? She goes, well, they have a hoo-hoo and tatas. And he was like, well, what about people who get operations? And she goes, well, then it's more about this and this. It's like, well, honey, well, which is it? So she needs to take a, sit, a seat and we can all talk about what gender is. And then her thing about trans athletes, 
it's as if uh, there are not athletes as big as Brittany Griner. Like she's a tall person. Like would someone say that she couldn't join the swim team because she's too tall? So it's, you know, it's, it's transphobia still because they're still not accepting the fact that women come in different types, different shapes, and we just have to accept and deal with the fact that sports are sports. Well, she, and, and, and I'm a, I'm a get off of Macy's boat, but she said something that I just thought was just so, so ridiculous. And yes, it came from her mouth and it was her opinion, but she said, but as a woman, just because you go change your parts, doesn't make you a woman. Mm-hmm. And she said, sorry about that. And she said, if you want me to call you a her, I will because that's what you want. But that doesn't make you a woman just because I call you a her and just because you got a surgery. I thought all of that could have been left out. She didn't, I, I, I was offended by her saying that. This is the thing about people assuming that the only thing that makes you a woman is being a female at birth, <laughs> right? right? I mean, woman, a woman, that is a gender term. Right. We recognize that people become women, even females become women. We right. have language that, that supports that. You know, right. there are ceremonies that support that. So when she said it was about body parts, and he says, well, what about surgery? Then she says, oh, no, 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 it's, it's about something else. It's like, well, what else is it about? Is it about having people scrutinize your appearance? Because trans women get that. Is it about not being able to find jobs and being paid less? Because trans women get that. Is it about the likelihood that you're going to be murdered or abused by your male partner? Trans women experience that. So I mean, if we're gonna really let's sit down and figure out as as a society, and it is a societal thing that says what a woman is, you know, let's let's apply that and let's see how many folks fit into that. It's not just women, it's also trans men. There are so many trans men that you would see and be out and about and not know, and they are they are men. You tell someone be a man, well, they are, they are. So it's like, you know, gender, that's gender. We talk about sex differently, and that's where she got hooked, caught up. She's confusing sex and gender. Well, okay. And I'm sure there will be more to say about that, but thank you for, and, and you know, for having this conversation and, you know, and us sharing about that because there are people out there that, a lot of people out there that probably feel like Macy Gray. And, uh, and I just think that it's time to start, you know, talking about that a little bit more. So I'm, I'm, I'm sure we will on the show, but. Uh, <laughs> you know, we will, cause I will. We will. <laughs> We, I, I have been waiting for, for, for this moment for, I'm going to say a good three, three weeks, uh, Vaj. And, you know, I've been talking about, you know, the, the, the play, what the end will be since I came back from New York. And to have our special guest on tonight to talk about the play, for me, is just so heartwarming. So if you're ready to move on with the show, I'm going to go ahead and introduce our, our, our guest tonight, uh, Vaj, if I may, if, if you're ready, sir. It pleases the court. It pleases the cast. It pleases my soul. <laughs> well, ladies and gentlemen, Montserrat is an award-winning writer from Memphis, Tennessee. He attended Morehouse College, Spelman College, Emory University, and earned an MFA in playwriting from the Yale School of Drama. 
He just finished his highly successful off-Broadway production of What the End Will Be at the Laura Pell Theater in New York City. About three generations of men who live under one roof and grapple with their own truths of what it means to be black and gay. It's an exploration of pride, pain, and patience through the unflinching eyes of fathers and sons. The New York Times praised it as everything that is meant when we say that Black lives matter, while the Wall Street Journal called it an undeniable pleasure. Ra has written and produced on over 2,000 hours of network television, most notably his episode of New Amsterdam, a seat at the table, took his own experience with police to reveal why Dr. Reynolds, played by Jocko Sims, chose to be a surgeon. Tonight, ladies and gentlemen, he is here to talk about this magnificent play, what the end will be, and what's on the horizon for this incredible, incredible writer and his career. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the He Said, He Said, He Said stage, Mansa Ra. Thanks for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Ah, thank you. Thank you. How are you, my friend? I am. Listen, I was doing great before you did our news wrap up. I usually am able to purge that and then visit, but it is what's happening in the country right now. Mm -hmm. it, is, it is like intense to, to be like, this is what really happened when you were on we were watching this on television. <laughs> Trump was trying to get out of his car to go join them. It's just, it's just bananas. So yeah, stay woke. <laughs> yes, yeah, stay, stay woke. And I, I still remember the day. I, I think about that moment, like I think about when the planes hit the World Trade Building in New York, and where I was, and what my, how big my eyes got when I watched that on TV unfold. And to to look and and let me just tell you. Uh, Mansa, that building is across the street from where I work. Wow! Wow! So I was, I was just, I was just blown away. But um, thank you, thank you for being here. Good evening once again, and welcome to our show. Um, I'm just going to ask you to take about 90 seconds to tell our viewers and our audience about yourself. For those, and for those who have not seen what the end will be, tell us a little bit about your story and the story you uh that you've created um sure so hey everybody i'm really really happy to be with you all um my name is Mansa. i am a playwright and a black radical lover and um i'm from memphis tennessee and i was educated in atlanta georgia at morehouse college so i was born where martin luther king died and I was educated where he was educated and born. And so I found myself as a writer really just picking up that legacy. Like the time said, it's about black people living. And so a lot of my work is not about our dying or our pain or a lot of the stuff that I think it's like really buzzy in the entertainment industry and theater, but moreover, like what is it like when we are in our gardens? What is it like when we're in our living rooms? What is it like when we are at peace and it's funny because people don't know. People only see so many aspects of Black people and Black culture. And I just like, as a storyteller, find it really amazing to invite people into the living room and not, you know, not for the, you know, the drama, the, the, the mess, the, you know, the, the police brutality, but for the life and the vivacity of Black culture 
And then with what the end will be, I get to sprinkle a little gayness in it, which was nice. Um, and so that's what that play is about. It's being in the living room with three generations of gay black men. And it is not a play about anybody struggling with sexuality or the police or the American government. It's about what it means to be a father and what does it mean to be a son? And what do we owe our families? What do we owe ourselves? And what does freedom really mean? Uh, I think that was a little bit longer than 90 seconds, but that's me in a nutshell. No, it's, it's okay. Thank you. Thank you. I, I'm, our viewers got, you know, again, a, a glimpse into what I saw. So I am very big on where someone comes from. So, Mons, I'm going to ask you, what was it like growing up as little Monster? Mm -hmm. I was little Jure. I changed my name about a year and a half ago. Uh, and if you are a real country, you pronounce Jire. The little Jire was uh, was really quiet and observant. I'm an only child, so I uh, I had this like complex that like I tried to be quiet so people wanted to be around me longer. <laughs> it's like the more I talked, the more I was just like, get this kid away from me. And so I listened a lot. Uh, and anybody who will tell you, like I always had a clipboard with me. I've known from the beginning that I was gonna be a writer. And so my mom signed me up for like every free lunch program and after school program trying to keep me busy and socialize me i think and i would go to golf camp with the clipboard and just be like they're writing a story <laughs> and then i would be like at you know at you know band camp or whatever and people were like are you writing about me and i was like no read it and then all of a sudden i'm passing around notebooks you know those composition notebooks with the like black and white splotches on it yeah. people were like okay what happened next finish writing and it was just kind of like my first taste of what it meant to be like a storyteller for a community, you know, the voice of my friends, even if we were in middle school or whatever, I was, I've just always been interested in listening to people's stories and sharing them and reflecting them back. Okay, I have to ask you before we go any further, how did you come up with Monsere? Uh Mansa Musa is a 14, uh, yeah, 14th century leader of Mali. And, um, and during the pandemic, I spent a lot of time researching civilizations, you know, what, what happens in the biggest picture possible. You know, I think so often our legacy, especially as black Americans is relegated to slavery and Obama, right? Like that is the container for our identities and anything before the slave ship is a big question mark. And if you get talking to any kind of like people who are actually from Nigeria, they'll be like, oh, you look, you know, you look, um, uh, you know, they'll tell you what tribe you look from, but like you really don't know. And so I just spent a lot of time thinking about the whole of black history, you know, like all of, all of people who share our melanin. And I came across this incredible Muslim leader who made a legendary trip to Mecca. And it was a six year journey where he essentially gave away more gold than was in the economy period. And the stories of his generosity lived on for centuries. And so for me, I really wanted to be known for someone who is generous and someone who is deeply spiritual. Okay, nice. So clearly you like history and learning. You went to some of the great universities. You went to Morehouse, Spelman and Yale, three very different educational facilities and learning experiences, how did they all shape you and your writing? 
You know, I think it's incredible. I didn't have to negotiate the white gays until I was an adult. I, I just didn't. It was, I grew up in Memphis and I went to black schools and then I went to the AUC. Um, and, and that's a place where I think black kids are encouraged to learn and grow and be as big as possible. Um, I also went to Emory for a while. And then when I went there, I was like the token black guy in a way that just felt like, oh, whatever he says goes. Like, I'm so happy, you know. It was like they treated me like a little bit like the inner city kid, but it was like fine. And then I got to Yale, which is, you know, the ivory tower, this kind of colossal place of history and legacy and, and excellence. And I realized just how out of touch white people were that they just had no clue. One of my favorite quotes is Michelle Obama when she was wrapping up her time in the White House and she was just like, guys, they're not that smart. They're just not that smart. And I think being in environments where I got to be my full self and then go into Yale and learn how to code switch and learn how to you know, put on, you know, put on whatever that thing is that we have to do, um, I got to really understand that it's not about them. And I think that that's something that a lot of my peers are still struggling with, honestly. It's just like trying to explain themselves to white people or trying to negotiate the white gays or prove their work to these white gatekeepers. And, um, and I was just fortunate enough that I understood really early on that my stories are for my people. And if anybody else gets it, then that's wonderful. And if they don't, you know, well, I hope you enjoyed spending a little bit of time in this McMansion that was beautifully designed by Reed. You know, go home, learn something. But I never had to cater to white gays, and I'm just really lucky that, that I went to programs and schools that encouraged me to be big versus when I got to Yale, I had to learn how to be small. Or, right, or fit in in general. Uh, we've had some people join us, gotta say hello. Hi, Judy. Hi, Judy. Judy's reaching out for... Hi, Linda. Linda is uh, a relative of mine. Good to see you. Thank you for joining. Um, so then how did you come to start writing? Um, I think I was always going to be a writer. I think the question is like what medium I wanted to do. I thought mm -hmm. I wanted to be a novelist. I, one of my favorite stories is when I was like 10 years old, I read Beloved uh, by Toni Morrison. Yeah. Wow, my mom heavy. didn't want me to read it. But the movie had come out, and I was really jealous that everybody was talking about Beloved. <laughs> and I wasn't old enough to see it. And so I read it. And um, and she didn't want me to. I, like, snuck it off the shelf, and I would sneak it back. And it was, you know, I'm an only child, so you got to make up sports. And, um, and I was just transported. It was one of those moments where it's just, like, history and literature and art the way that the words were rendered on the page, I knew I wanted to do that. I wanted to be able to make art with language. Um, and after I read it, I asked my mom some questions. I was like, so tell me this about the slavery. Tell me this about, you know, you know, motherhood. And she was like, did you read that book <laughs> that I had? And, and so from a very early age, I've just been deeply curious about how art and words and language especially can transport us and take us somewhere we've never been before with such clarity. You know, like after finishing Beloved, I knew more about slavery than, than, than I, I think I could have gotten from any history book because Toni Morrison explored the interior life of her people. Um, and I knew that that's something that I wanted to do. And so I, I, was, an, I was a writer. I, went to, I did AP English. I, I, 
founded the National English Honor Society at my high school. Like I like I am a type A person. <laughs> like when I make a goal, I make sure it happens. And um, and that was and that was the dream that I've I've been able to turn into reality. I, I live in West Hollywood and I'm a professional writer. It's incredible. I love everything that you just said. Um, wow. Um, so did you write what the end will be as a book or specifically for the theater? You know, I wrote it as a family, um, which is which is my way of saying, <laughs> there's a silly quote from uh, Steel Magnolias where Weezer's like, why would I read a book? If it's any good, they'll turn it into a movie. And I just like always thought that was the funniest thing because Steel Magnolias been turned into a movie. <laughs> like, you know, like it is. <laughs> That, that really good stories, people that you want to spend time with, they don't go away. And, and people get inspired to, to, to tell different versions of it. And, and so for me, I think when I, when I started dreaming of the Kennedys and what would it be if Little Duray had an older gay black man in my family who I could confess my feelings to, who didn't take me to conversion therapy when I did it. You know, like what would happen if we actually felt safe baseline of our identity. And then we could build identity and 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 more on top of that. So so the Kennedys were just a family of that came to me that's like, what if a Vietnam vet lost his partner to COVID? I mean that's horrible. But 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 like knew what long love was, you know? And then what if the dad was still in the closet but like wanted to get married? And so was Mary but closeted. Isn't that weird? And then what if like the son gets caught sneaking a boy out of his house? As I did a lot. <laughs> I only got caught once, but I, I snuck a lot of boys over. Um, and so these Kennedy men just started coming to me. And um, and I did a really early workshop, Keith Randolph Smith, who you saw play Bartholomew, the grandfather, read it for the first time. And it was just clear to me that these were real people, that they weren't. They weren't some weird imagination that I wasn't putting something freakishly odd on stage, but there is truth to truth to this Kennedy family. I, I want to ask you, uh, Mansa, if you could share with us your method for developing the settings uh, for this story specifically, um, did it start with an image, a voice, a concept, a dilemma, or was there there something else? Um, my plays all start with images. They do. So so for Too Heavy for Your Pocket, which was my debut play, I saw a field of grass. And and I, like I said, when I got to the north, I just realized how out of touch Yankees were about so much. And so like, please don't have grass. Please, people don't go outdoors in place. <laughs> and I wanted to fill the stage with grass and what it is mean to have that texture, that type of nature in the space and how that informs how people live in the South, it really informs our lives, nature does, um, in a way that I don't know it's always true about New York. And with What the End Will Be, um, it was the moment that Tony sneaked Antoine out and Antoine's annoyed because I'm your, I'm your nigga, like why you treat me like this? And not only that, but, and it's not true in this iteration right now, but you know, this house is nice. These people are rich, they have it all. And Antoine comes into the space and he's effeminate and he's proud and he's out and he is made to feel shame 
in this kind of um, beautiful uh, Atlanta McMansion. And that was the moment. It was like, what would it be like if little me stepped into the dream before I knew what the dream really felt like? And that's kind of like the moment that I started with is, is Antoine, Antoine saying, I'm breaking up with you. I'm not, I you're, you, you rich closeted football player. I can't live like this. I don't know how you live like that. And then that puts Tony on his journey. That's how it started at least. <laughs> okay, okay. And oh, again, go, go ahead boss, because I, <laughs> if, no. if, I could, if I could run the play another month, I promise you, for three people who are on this, on who are watching us tonight, I promise you I would buy you all a ticket so you could see it. And I have one person here, Robert Blue Baby, who said it was a great play. He saw it, it, it and so besides you, uh, Robert Baby, I'm not buying you a ticket, but anybody else on here who, if I promise you, if it was open another month, I would buy you a ticket to see it, it's that good. Okay, that's, that, that's my deal. That's hilarious. Well, we have Steve Pride watching, who says, great show. They're out in California. So when you go to California, you make sure you get him a ticket. Hey, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> So how much of you is in this play? Oh, I'm all over it. <laughs> I am all over it. Um, yeah, I mean, I have some sunflowers up here. That's a theme of the play. My partner, that's his nickname. He's my sunflower. Um, I love old fashions. That's Maxwell's drink. He's constantly drinking old fashions. Um, like I said, I snuck boys into the house. I mean, really, it's me. It's just this kind of, kind of exploration i mean i think that that's what happened just like i i mean you know when you are a gay youth you don't always have visions of the future you know what i mean you don't always have visions of what that might look like and so i got to go crazy with what that might look like you know i just got to go wild with what does it mean to to reach the end as a as a black male gay person so at so many different intersections, this is my Venn diagram, intersections, you know, that's not, that's not what we talk about, right? We talk about, we talk about, we talk about diseases. We talk about gun violence. We talk about loneliness. <laughs> we talk about so much. And for me, the display, I wanted to talk about love. And my next play, I'm going to be talking about love. It's something I'm interested in. I started this off. I'm, I am, I, I did not realize until very recently how, uh, how radical it is to to really be a lover, especially being in the skin that I'm in. Hmm. What do you mean by a lover? You know, Michael Jackson, I'm a lover, not a fighter. You know, like, this sense of like, I, you know, like, right, exactly. It's like, I'm not, um, there's a quote from One Night in Miami, the beautiful Regina um, King directed film. And it's like, I am not a warrior of a race war. That's not what I am. And I think America makes you do that because it's such an awful place to live so frequently that you have to fight for your rights and you have to be a credit to your race and you have to make your ancestors proud. And you have to be a good ancestor. I mean, you got to do a lot. <laughs> and just mm -hmm. to say, no, I love. I love Every my family. I love my partner. I love. I love that 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 love is actually the core of who I am. Not not a 
political identity or mm-hmm. cause or they're important. They're really important. I'm not taking anything away from it. But when I wake up in the morning and when I go to bed at night, uh, it's not what I'm thinking about. I love that. I love it. So then which character, jumping back to your play, which character was the most difficult for you to write? I mean, the grandfather, I think. Um, so Bartholomew Kennedy is only in his 70s. Uh, my grandparents are in their 80s. Today's their anniversary, actually, for watching. Happy anniversary, y'all. Happy anniversary, y'all. Um, Happy anniversary. Yeah, 60 years, 62 years, something like that. Something you can be vague and just say a long um, time. <laughs> a long time. <laughs> but I, but, but, but it was, it was just, it, I, you know, um, I volunteered for a program called Sage, um, which worked with um, elderly gay members of Harlem at the time, and that was my first time meeting anyone who was a senior and queer, anyone, just anybody, and so it was not someone I had a lot of things to pull from, if that makes any sense. I got to do a lot of dreaming with Bartholomew. And I got to do a lot of work with Keith Randolph Smith, who played Bartholomew with, well, what, you know, how, how does this feel in your body? And what would you say to them? And you might notice, Alvin, that none of the characters say, I love you in the play, that they don't use that kind of language. Right. Um, and how do they do it instead? You know, how do they, how do they negotiate affection? Um, I think that's a thing that Black men have a hard time doing sometimes, is saying I love you and meaning it and doing it. Um, I forgot the question. I'd be rambling. My bad. No, you answered it. And uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Vaj. No, so you answered it. And it 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 is a challenge uh, for certain generations of gay men, especially Black gay men, because one, AIDS wiped out a lot of of folk, and two, that that bridge that would have linked us to the ones that are super elderly is gone. So there's like this sort of island of isolation between the generations. So I completely understand. Good answer. Thank you. And speaking to that, that was one of, you know, I was going to ask you what was your favorite moment of, of the play, uh, Mansa, but I want to share with you one of my favorite moments of, of the play um, covers what we don't talk about as much as I think we should. And that's how we deal in, in unexpected ways of caring for our elderly parents. And you brought that story home so well to me that I saw people crying, okay? And, and feeling love, but at the same time, these two emotions were, I saw them because it was, it was happening while I was watching it. How did you come up, how did you come about writing that into the storyline? You know, we all want to make our parents proud. I think that was like the core of that beat for me is that like Maxwell is doing his best to make his dad happy. Maxwell wants his dad to be proud. Maxwell wants his dad to live a long, happy life. Maxwell wants all these things for his dad. Mm -hmm. And simultaneously is having to raise a child, a son, a man. And I was so interested about that intersection. When I was 14, my grandmother moved in with us. Um, She passed away maybe five years after that. And it was the funniest thing to watch this woman um, come, come from living alone in Detroit into our house with my mom, with me, with her son, 
and not be able to do anything. You know, it's not her house. <laughs> it's like, it, it was this weird limbo that she eventually figured out, but it was it was always amazing to me to feel like that's part of the cycle of life if we're if we're so lucky that you know that our parents take care of us and then we take care of our parents and it is just as frustrating for both parties and that's funny you know what I mean the other thing we haven't said is that the play is a comedy the goal is that you're laughing people cry obviously but like it's supposed to be funny too did you laugh Ali you, you did I did I laugh. Oh my God! Yeah. What was your favorite joke? What did you like? What did you like? <laughs> you, mean, you mean when I laughed? Yes. Oh, when I laughed, it was the opening play. It was the opening scene when the grandfather, when 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 he was coming into the house. That whole moment. What happened? I don't want to oh. hear. Oh, you don't want to hear. Alert. <laughs> the, the, the opening of the the opening of the play when you brought Keith onto the stage. That whole opening had me in tears. I was laughing from the moment. I was like, how do you start a playoff with, all you heard was, I think it was like three or word, three or four words come out of his mouth. And he wasn't even on stage. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and, and, and we, 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 we were screaming. So no, that was that was one of my funny moments. There were lots of funny moments in it. But again, you, you grabbed our emotions in ways that it wasn't like a thunderstorm. You took us on a journey with you and we followed you and I'm getting chills right now because it, you, you, in, a, in some words, I hope I don't get sued over. You did what needed to be done. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank Season letters coming to you. <laughs> That's Thank all I'm gonna you. say. Because uh, I feel like people walk away talking about that they're crying and it's emotional and, and we get to see this man transition and, and pass away, which I think is all very true. But but I also I you know I, I want to take care of my my audience. I want the audience to feel good. I don't I don't ever want to make the audience feel bad. Right. Well, I, I you know I I'm go I'm sorry. Go ahead. Can please. I interrupt? Because I do. I have to know this. Because first of all, getting a play done in New York it, in any capacity is such a long shot. To get one done by a reputable theater company in a reputable. A theater in Broadway. I mean, the odds are just astronomical. Can you briefly tell us the, the journey to getting this on off Broadway? Or I'm going to say Broadway because it's just right down the street. I ain't going to tell you nothing about it. It's on Broadway. Um, listen, it only matters if you live in New York. Everybody else yeah. is like, <laughs> it's literally the same street. <laughs> <Exactly>. um, <laughs> I, I did live in New York, so I get to be <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's funny. I'll start a little bit earlier, dude. Like, um, 300 people applied to Yale the year I got in, and only three people were accepted. And um, I got in on my first try. And I feel like that was the moment I realized that the stories that I was telling were singular. That, that if we're being honest, writing is a job. You know what I mean? Like, you know, there is there is someone working right now on Spider-Man 18. You know what I mean? You know, that is like, it is part of the job is to know, you know, uh, exposition, climax, resolution. You know, part of the job is just some of these mechanics. But I think what makes my work special and particular and then producible, which I think that it's kind of what we're pointing at is like, dude, it's on stage, <laughs> you know, <laughs> is, that, um, is that these are people that we're not used to seeing. And I know what they sound like because I listen to them and I talk to them. And, and nobody else at, 
at MTC or Roundabout or Insert, reputable theater company here, has spent time in my grandmother's kitchen. Nobody in those places have spent time at Bulldogs in Atlanta. And I am telling stories, I think, that are, are really textured in reality for an audience that is thankfully incredibly curious about the people I love. Right on. Well, uh, Dwayne Vernon chimed in, who is also a writer. He's been on the show. When you said that writing is a job and you got to know, he was like, <laughs> you tell it. So, <laughs> it really is. <laughs> right on, right on. Thank you for answering that. It's, and, and again, congratulations, because it really is such a monumental feat. Uh, stars really have to align. You know, talent is one thing, but there's still a lot of things that have to come into, into play. And I just there are a lot of incredible plays that have never been produced. There are mm -hmm. a lot of incredible plays that have never seen the light of day. Right. Yes. Yes. Truly. So, Monza, you, 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 Monza, you mentioned earlier that this was your second play. Um, your first being too heavy for your pocket. Is am I correct? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's and correct. and you also and and so Margot and I'm hoping that that I'm pronouncing her name right. Um, Bondelon. Bandelon, she was the play director for your first play, and she's also the play director for, you know, what the end will be. Can you talk a little bit about that collaboration and the chemistry? Man, Margot is an angel on this planet. Um, she is one of the white people who knows she doesn't get it, which is half the battle. Um, so Margot was a director at Yale. That's how we got acquainted. And she actually directed my final piece at Yale, my thesis. It's called a Carlotta. Um, and so when I, yeah, when I when I got the opportunity to take Too Heavy and produce it, which was incredible, I won a competition called the Candida in Atlanta. And uh, and Margot was a no brainer because this is what she did, y'all. I'll, I'll tell you the story. It's a little bit long, but I, I but I want to talk. Um, I had been working on a piece with another director who literally asked during rehearsal who Martin Luther King was. Um, he was the guy from Israel, so I cut him a little bit of slack. But it was hard because, dude, you're directing this play and you don't know who MLK is. And then he was like, oh, oh, I know who MLK is. Wait, who's Malcolm X, though? Like, literally, I'm teaching <laughs> <our history. laughs> as, as I'm trying to get this play done. <laughs> and it's just kind of it's crazy. It's and, like he's the um, other guy this school I'm, was named after. Well, there we go. There we go. And, and so, and so, and so he, and so, you know, he ended up not fitting. <laughs> and Margot, on her very first day of our rehearsal process, literally sat on her hands and knees like she literally lowered herself in front of our cast who also was like why would you bring her in here you know what i mean like they're looking like you know why is this and she said y'all i am here to learn that was her introduction and just that by itself for me was one of the moments where it's like she's special and then on top of that she's incredibly talented she is an incredibly talented director. And so this was this is actually our fourth production together. We did a show called Somebody's Travel. We did two productions of Too Heavy, and now we've done what the end will be. Wow. Well, I wanted to ask you about Margot because coming from I, I'm I'm a director and I am taking my first stab at working with a writer on on a project. And so when I done did my homework on the work that you've been doing with Margot. I just thought 
I need to give her a shout out as well because great job, girl, wherever you are, wherever you are, hopefully you're oh, watching Margo. this. Uh, Margo, you got it going on, okay? So, yeah, so. Um, oh, I wanna say hi to, uh, uh, let me see, Derwin's on here, George. Mm -hmm. I wanna say hi to you guys. Um, a special shout out to you. Thank you for joining uh, the show tonight. I know I've told a couple of them about, about you, uh, Monsa. So um, thank you guys for joining the show tonight. Isn't he amazing? So, okay, yeah. Bosh, go ahead. <laughs> well, who are some writers that you really like and look up to? Toni Morrison is like the queen. I've read everything she's ever written. Um, there's a writer called Gabriel Garcia Marquez, mm -hmm. who is one of the fathers of magical realism and revolutionary writing in Latin America. Uh, and then living, there's no one greater than Sorel McCraney, who wrote Moonlight. He's exceptional. Did you guys see Moonlight, the picture? Mm -hmm. Yes. I did. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. The show, Moonlight? The, it's a, it's a, um, it won the Oscar for, for best picture. It's about the, yeah. um, yeah. So the I mean, guy who yes. wrote that is Terrell of McBrainy, and he is the reason I decided to 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 do this professionally. Um, he has a series of plays called the Brother Sister Plays, where he brings to life European Orishas, and they're like in this kind of Miami housing project, going at it at each other. And it was the moment I was like, "Oh, plays can be about me." Um, mm. Hey, oh, I guess the future of the play is important. Can I yes, that was the next Rosalie? question. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So Rose is asking, will Yo, the play be showcased elsewhere on the East Coast or coming to Washington, D.C.? To, to be determined. So there is certainly a future for this play. Too Heavy for Your Pocket ended up going to, let's say, 16 cities after its debut. And so hopefully what the end will be has a similar trajectory and it's coming to a place near you soon. But we just closed last week, y'all. So your boy is still tired. <laughs> I am, I am, I am in bed, not moving. Because <laughs> um, it was a feat, like you said, putting putting that play up was not was not an easy process. So hopefully, there's more coming. But you know, it's a little bit like, all right, that one, that one worked. <laughs> well, Amansa, we we are about to wrap up with you, but. We, we need to keep you for a little longer because Vosh and I have decided to play a little game with you that we play with some of our, our special guests. Um, but, but, but before we go, I, I want you to briefly tell us what's next for Montserrat. What's next for me? So I am turning too heavy for your pocket into a movie, um, which is really fun. So that is really what I've been up to. I've been re-engaging 1961's Freedom Riders and and what that would look like to turn it into a full-length picture. Um, and then hopefully getting what the end will be on the road. Hopefully we can see that in some cities soon. So those are those are the only things I can talk about right now. Okay. Yeah. Well, well, no, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for being on the show tonight and for dishing with us. Um, I, I'm speaking for Vosh and saying that we have thoroughly enjoyed, you know, you being on the show. And we don't want you to go anywhere, like I said, because we have something special that we want you to play with <laughs> us. But, right. but before we do that, um, we have a special uh, salute, ladies and gentlemen, to the NNPA from Corrine Jean-Pierre.
Corinne Jean-Pierre, White House Press Secretary, and I am thrilled to celebrate the 82nd anniversary of NNPA and the 195th anniversary of the Black Press of America. Congratulations to Dr. Ben Chavis, Chair Karen Carter-Richards, Stacy Brown, and the entire team on your continued leadership. It is because of what you and the NNPA publishers do each and every day that Black voices are amplified across the nation, and I look forward to working with you for years to come. Well, thank you, Ms. Corinne Jean-Pierre. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank yes, you. indeed. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, Bunch and I, we have come up with this game called Rapid Fire to help our viewers learn a little bit more about our special guests. So we're going to ask you a question. Are you familiar with the game Rapid Fire? I am, and I'm excited to, to play. We'll see what comes out of my brain. Okay, <laughs> we, we are ready. Bunch, would you like to uh, start, take it off? Sure. Uh, if you could buy any type of food to eat right now, what would it be? Oxtails. Oh, oxtail. <laughs> <laughs> if you could be any animal, who, what would it be and why? Ooh, I would be an orangutan. Um, <laughs> they're my favorite animal. They are these powerful, intelligent, solitary creatures that are just beautiful. I would be an orangutan. Okay. What's one thing on your bucket list? Skydiving. Mm. What's your favorite? We'll see if I do it though. It's scary, right? I want to do it, but I don't want to do it. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do. What is the one thing that annoys you most? Ooh, the one thing that annoys me most. White people? I don't know. I don't know. I'm not. Wow. <laughs> 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 Who, who's your favorite superhero and why? Storm, Oro Monroe, the greatest. Oh my God. Because she can fight even without her powers. That's the crazy thing. Like she's just badass, period. Sorry, mm -hmm. I love Storm. <laughs> I love it. If you, if you could trade lives with anyone for a day, who would it be and why? Gail. <laughs> you get to be Oprah's best friend and you have your own TV show? Like literally, what is wrong with Gail's life? Nothing. Like she's 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 living it. Uh, I would be Gail. Like and I wouldn't give it back. I would be like, Gail, you gotta be me. I'm sorry. <laughs> Finish this sentence. I'm so happy it's summer so I can. Ooh, I'm so happy it's summer so I can go to the beach every single week. I love it. I've been going to the beach so much and it feels so good out there. Right on. And what is your favorite thing about someone in your family? Ooh, all of the holders are great, great storytellers. They are the funniest people you will ever meet and they never stop talking. They just don't. Like, it's just like they will go, 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 go. And you are endlessly fascinated because it's like the way that they talk and the way that they see the world, I just feel very lucky to be a holder. They're, they're funny and they tell great stories. Hmm. My, my last question for you, 
if you could be any flavor of ice cream, which one would you be? <laughs> Wedding cake. Because you got the texture in there, but it's like vanilla, but you got a little bit of like cake flavor in there. And I don't know. I love it. I love it. I would be I would be wedding cake ice cream. Okay, work that out. Okay, well, and this is my last question. <laughs> <laughs> if a movie was made of your life, what genre would it be and who would play you? It would be a drama because I'm dramatic, I'm so dramatic. And who would play me in my yes. biopic? I don't know if I'm lucky, Sterling, uh, Sterling. Um, K. Brown. Oh, from, yeah, Sterling K. Brown, if I'm lucky, yeah. that would be cool. I think that's a great choice. I think that's a great. First of all, thank you for for indulging us in our rapid fire, getting to know Montserrat a little better. Thank you very much. I know I know you a little better. And and Judy asked, "What is it on my T-shirt? It is what the end will be. It is the T-shirt from <laughs> from the play. I I managed to make one before I left New York." And I, I am so glad I did. And I told Vox, this is the first time that I've ever worn. I love this t-shirt, that's all. And it's all because of you, Martha. So thank you, thank you. We are nearing the end of the show. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. And again, dishing with us and telling your story and sharing with us. And if uh, what the end will be comes to your city, ladies and gentlemen, I swear, I'm, I'm following him, so I'm gonna let you all know on the show. We're, we're gonna let them know, aren't we, Vosh? We're, 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 gonna, we're, we're staying closely connected to you so that we will let people know if it decides to come to you know to their, their, their city. Thanks, I signed on late and missed that. Oh, okay, Judy. Um, but um, next week we will see you guys and we want to share with you our words of the week this week, um, which is by an unknown individual. Change will not come if we wait for some other person or some other time, we are the ones we've been waiting for. We are the change that we seek. Ladies and gentlemen, those are the words of the week from Vash and I. And again, thank you for joining our show, you know, with special guest Montserrat. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And we will see everybody next week on our new episode of He Said. He Said. He Said. Look at that. Just like music. Thank you. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Y'all have a good night, everybody. Thank you for tuning in.